When you read the typical insurance company website, basically any company could have said those exact same things. If I started an insurance company yesterday, I could have written that exact same copy. They're undifferentiated. But people solve that problem, Pat. You put people on there, you're the only company with your people. I want to connect the listeners to the best of the best. Welcome to the Evolved Broker Podcast. I am your host, Pat Costello, the co-founder and principal at Evolve MGA. Our mission for the podcast is to bring the insurance industry the best of the best. In this episode, I spoke with one of the most successful digital marketers in the country. He's the co-founder and CMO of Orbit Media and has provided digital strategy to more than a thousand businesses. Forbes listed him as one of their top 10 marketing experts. He's also been listed as a top marketing influencer by Entrepreneur, Social Media Explorer, Outbrain, Brand25, and Fox. His name is Andy Crestadina. He specializes in optimizing websites. I wanted to have Andy on because in my work with Evolve, I've personally been on thousands of insurance agency websites. I know this is an area where our industry can improve. Andy is a top rated speaker and is dedicated to teaching marketing. So I figured there would be no better person to break this down. We discussed how marketers within the insurance world can get the most out of their websites and online presence in general. Please download subscribe, and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on. And feel free to reach out to me at pat at evolvedbrokerpodcast.com with any comments or suggestions for the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. If you're tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose first as your primary financing source and experience the first difference today. Without further ado, here's Andy. Andy, welcome to the Evolved Broker Podcast. Thanks for having me, Pat. I am glad to be here. You focus in an area where I think the insurance world needs to improve. And that is digital marketing. And we were kind of talking a little bit before uh, we jumped on and started recording, but digital marketing is a, is a huge, huge topic. Um, so I really want to focus this conversation on websites and optimizing websites, because I know you have optimized over a thousand for different businesses. And so I would love to jump in on how you think an insurance agency that you know may have set up their website five, 10 years ago. It's old, it's stagnant, it's not optimized for SEO. If someone's sitting in that position, where do they start? What should they do to uh, revamp their website and make sure it is the best it can possibly be? Let's just hit it right on the head from the jump. I'm going to say that this is a relationship-driven business. 100% of our business, of our listeners know that. Yep. And that uh, there is a, a lot of trust and uh, communication required to get to the point where a new policy is signed. Yep. Uh, and business grows. 
in that process, there's uh, the website can support everything else that the agent is doing if it is personal, if it is human, if it has a detailed page for the human, for the broker, for the agent. This is a giant gap on so many insurance websites. Does your site have a very detailed page about you? If you search for you, does your site rank high? Does the page they land on when they when they go to your page on your site offer unexpectedly helpful and personal details? Do they feel a connection when they land? Mm. One of the problems with websites generally is that they sort of lack a personal or human element. Okay. <laughs> like, are there any faces on your on your homepage? Yeah. And then another problem is that, and, and that's a, that's amplified to the extreme in insurance. Mm-hmm. You're active on LinkedIn. Do people, what do people do next? They go look for you, right? So yep. uh, sites need to better support that relationship by having better pages for people. That's funny. And I, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent here, but on what, what I've noticed when we put out posts on social media, particularly LinkedIn, when we have photos of our team or videos, like for example, if I do like a selfie video that I'm putting yeah. out there, it, sure. it gets way more engagement when you talk about <laughs> likes, comments, clicks, impressions. It's interesting. Not, not surprising yeah. that people connect with people. Right. It seems so obvious. Another problem with insurance websites is that they don't, they don't sound very different from each other. They sort of look the same and they're saying the same things. And when you read the typical insurance company website, basically any company could have said those exact same things. If I started an insurance company yesterday, I could have written that exact same copy. They're undifferentiated. But people solve that problem, Pat. You put people on there. You're the only company with your people. So I appreciate <laughs> you saying that. <laughs> yeah, it's different. You are you. So and 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 um, just to highlight that even more, it used to be such that like if I left a voicemail for someone, they're going to look me up before they call me back. Today, we're all online. People are looking each other up during the call because your name appears right under your face in in the virtual meeting. Mm-hmm. So we are searching for each other once, you know, during the meeting, we, you do it, I do it. Everyone does that all the time. So we should search, optimize our websites for the personal SEO to try to rank, do our best to rank for each broker, each agent's name. Uh And those, and to do that, those pages have to be very detailed. They should be even more, more authoritative on the topic of you than the, than your LinkedIn page. Okay. So that, that's a huge one. Okay. So Andy, if we're starting off, we got this old website, we're looking to have, the most optimized website for the future. Mm-hmm. Would your advice, and this might depend on a couple different variables, but would you recommend off the bat that we outsource our website creation and optimization, or would you recommend that we bring someone in-house mm. to, to, to build that out? Because I know that SEO requires maintenance, mm-hmm. right? So how do you think about that for maybe a, a smaller company or even a larger company? Yeah, there are so many uh, sort of trade specific skills for web development that virtually, you know, only very, very large companies try to do it in house web development. And, and you only need web development like every four to five years. Mm. It's definitely the kind of thing that you should not try to do yourself in house. Uh, it just, you, it will, there are way too many details. There's too much nuance. There's too many skill sets. You need a lot of experts to build a great website. 
not a project manager, first of all, but separate from that, you need someone that understands keyword research and SEO copywriting. You need someone that understands design and understands UX, someone that knows how to translate a brand. You need expert copywriting for the sake of persuasion and trust. There, you need accessibility, right? You need, you need, it needs to load fast. It needs to be easy to update. It need, the results need to be easy to measure. There's a ton of requirements that go into great web. Yeah. I don't recommend so definitely get help with that. Once it's live, a very different question. The maintenance thing you put it, maintenance, yep. the ongoing publishing, the ongoing, it's a cyber insurance. There's a new trend. You're going to know about that better than anybody else. You can't really outsource that easily, right? You're not going to find a subject matter expert for your category who can True. answer the question the same. Yeah. It's so been a huge I, issue for us. For sure. I, I get it. So the platform for publishing, hire the best you possibly can every four to five years, the ongoing publishing inside that platform, you know, you can outsource certain tasks, editing, creation of visuals, um, you know, the, uh, content management, but you can't outsource your own voice mm -hmm. and nobody is closer to your audience than you. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend that some of that comes in house where you're just, you know, your basic, you know, content strategy. This is what we talk about. This is how often we publish. This is how we, this is our tone, our voice. Mm -hmm. And here's what we, here's, what we do and don't do on our site, mm -hmm. you know, those are things that um, uh, you're probably going to get better results in the long run if you, if you uh, yeah. bring that in. Outsourcing those things can be very frustrating. Mm -hmm. Andy, so if you're, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're consulting with someone, and mm -hmm. they are, they're earlier on. Do you start off by helping them figure out what they want to accomplish with the website or their brand? Because I know when we think about our website, it's like you know, the situation when a lot of folks first come to our website is typically based on when after someone from our team reaches out to them and they're like, oh, who is this? Want to make sure they're legit. Want to make sure they're professional. Want to make sure that they have a quality right. AM best yep. rating, stuff like that. Yep. Well, the goals for websites are actually pretty common across all kinds of categories, right? Increase awareness, generate leads, support sales efforts. These are like common goals, like, yeah. you know, and then there's all the content marketing goals, like grow your email list, grow your following. Like there's lots of other stuff there, but fundamentally, like a lot of these sites, it's not difficult to conclude like what the, what the goals are, what success would look and feel like. On the other hand, where you have to begin when planning a website is to understand intimately the visitor's needs and understand from the client, what wins the sales conversation. Mm. If I do enough interviews with stakeholders and with reps to figure out what the, what these visitors need to know uh, before they're willing to take action, fill out a contact form, become a lead. What are their top questions? What are their top objections? What are their hopes and fears? Now I know how to construct a page. I build that out so that it meets their needs, right? Job one, meet the visitor's information needs. The second job done sort of in the same, you know, viewport on, in the same page, the site needs to inject into their field of vision, the things that you want that, that they weren't looking for, but that you want them to see evidence, you know, certifications, credentials, awards, no one goes to websites to see if you want awards, but you know, when you make a marketing claim or when you answer an important question, you can support that by adding evidence like testimonials or awards or years in business, things like this. So the great pages emulate us. This is actually super important and a nice way to summarize the whole game. A great sales page emulates a sales conversation, and it does so by answering questions, addressing objections, and supporting those answers with evidence. Answer evidence, answer evidence, call to action. Mm -hmm. 
That's the structure of a high-performing page. You can't do that unless you do qualitative research, right? Talk to, talk to stakeholders, talk to customers, talk to reps, talk to executives, so that you understand really why these people are on this page, what they need to see, and what you say that wins the sales conversation. That's why all websites are different. That's why not everyone can have the same copy. You know, that's why um, you know, we have to do all this upfront information gathering before we can even, even try to build a page, because it's not about us. It's not what we want to say. It's what they need to hear. That makes a lot of sense. Are there any sample websites that you think would be great for someone that's listening to this to check out if they're looking to optimize their website or if they're looking to learn from the best? Um, you know, one comes to mind in the financial category. Uh, we did a site for a big uh, kind of private equity group. Uh, they're called Adams Street Partners. When you land on this page and then when this page loads, you're going to see a lot of things above the fold on the homepage that are 100% specific to that company. Assets under management, you know, 50 years in business. You're going to see some of the publishing. You know, you're going to see the the uh, number of companies they track and about their process. So immediately when that page loads, you are going to trust that this is a legit business. You're going to feel like this is not the same as every other PE firm or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's that's sort of the job job one. This page loads. These pixels are visible now. Does that visitor can that does it have uh, quick visual credibility? Mm. So it's succeed or fail on that. Does this page have quick visual credibility? A lot of homepage visitors, actually, we did some research and found that um, 75% of homepage visitors will navigate before scrolling. They're just going to go straight to the main nav. So next job, right, are the navigation labels specific? Are they descriptive? Real quick, Andy, what's the, what's the main nav? Is that the, is that the top menu? Yeah, the top menu. Yep, okay. main navigation, top menu, same thing. Okay, got you. So a lot of people have like, um, you know, solutions, services, you know, about blog contact. Those are generic. Those are generic. Those are again, undifferentiated. Those are common to every business. It, it's, it blows my mind that people keep building websites that have the same exact navigation as 1 million other companies. Why not make it specific? So this one that I'm mentioning, Adam street, it's like strategies and solutions hover over that. What you can see at a glance, without even clicking, exactly what businesses they're in, how they help, with you know what they're involved with, co-investments, growth equity, primary investments, private credit, like so. Navigation labels are very important UX because not only are they going to help the visitor predict what they get if they click and guide them deeper into the website. After all, the goal of the homepage is to get the visitor off of the homepage onto a page where you can speak to them more specifically. But they're going to do that in a way that 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 just that indicates your business category, what you do, what you don't do. It's going to, uh, everyone, everywhere, every day, web page loads, they're scanning the, the, the menu. So make that descriptive and uh, specific. I have it pulled up in front of me. For anyone listening, it's Adams with an S on the end, A-D-A-M-S-S-T-R-E-E-T-P-A-R-T-N-E-R-S, AdamsStreetPartners.com. Yeah, I'm looking at exactly what you're talking about here, Andy. Yeah, you can, I mean, there's no, there's zero ambiguity. There's 100% agreement. Everyone knows whatever all those words mean, you know, and as you scroll down, you, it, it just invites you deeper into the site. And by the way, when you go to those people pages that I mentioned, right, you want to see more about them, our firm, team, leadership, very detailed pages about the people, you know, and their credibility and their credentials. 
I got a consultation once about our website and one of the key pieces of feedback that they gave us was you guys should be showing more of what your broker experience looks like. Like what would a broker, what's life like for a broker mm -hmm. that works with Evolve? Is that something that you guys incorporate into your strategy? It's uh, oftentimes, yes. The idea is you can't rely on the imagination of the visitor and you have to spell out for them the before and after. Contrast status quo with the new reality having of, of working with you. Uh, what life is like is a big statement. And that's typically, I would reserve that for, for brands that are where the person's really making a big decision for their life. I see. Um, so for example, like when you build websites for like colleges and universities, the person make a, like a lifestyle choice, you know, they're deciding like where to live and what to study and like, you know, what they're going to be doing for the next years or like senior housing, huge decision, right? What kind of, what am I going to eat? What's my health care? Like, where am I going to live? What is it close to? Yeah. You're really trying to help the person imagine a day in their life, right? Interview existing people, current customers and tell them what life is like. In your case, it's a, it's a service, right? It's a B2B service. So um, it, it just depends on the visitor. If that visitor is more data-driven, then you want to show the before and after for with the numbers and with charts and visuals. You know, if it's more of a emotional, like feeling like, you know, travel or something like you want to, you know, kind of tell a little story and do it with characters. And, and so basically, yes, you're trying to uh, help them imagine the outcome of saying yes, or at least just filling out a contact form or starting this conversation, which by the way is important. These websites don't sell anything. They're just starting conversations. Your job is just to give them enough trust so they fill out the contact form and now you've got a lead. You're not, you don't have to sell the whole thing here. You're just trying to make that person seem human. You know, the, the site seem informative, looks credible, looks legit. Yeah, I'll return their phone call or yeah, I'll fill out this form. But yeah, that, that, that contrast, very powerful, aligns very closely with, you know, human psychology and brain chemistry. You know, the contrast of, you know, status quo versus, uh, you know, where they're going to land if they go with you. Um, really important to highlight that. I'm not sure if it's, it's, it's not always a lifestyle choice, but yes, basically yes. Is simplicity like a core component of what people should be looking to accomplish with their website? That's a, I love the openness of your questions. This is, this is great, Pat. It's I can good. qualify yes. a little bit just because mm -hmm. I go on certain websites and there's a lot of complexity in terms of there's just so many options of when I go to the top menu, you know, there's yep. 20 options that come down and I don't know exactly where something lives. And I have a, my navigation of the website can be confused at points. Yeah. So, so that's visual complexity there. Uh, there's a correlation in research. Uh, Google did this research that showed a correlation between, um, uh, simplicity and perceived beauty. So a lot of people, we, we build websites, we've built hundreds and hundreds of websites over the years. And people say like, we ask them what sites they like. And many people say Apple. And when you ask them why they say it's clean, modern design, basically people like simplicity because, uh, it guides the eye. It's not crowded. You know, your brain is, is allowed to focus on just one thing at a time got a strong central focal point. In other words, every web page, in fact, every scroll depth on every web page should have a visual hierarchy. What's the most prominent thing? What's the second most prominent thing? And it should be deliberate. The most prominent thing should be the most important thing. 
The second most prominent thing should be the next most important thing. That's why subheads that say things like our solutions are basically a mistake. Like, why would you make the most prominent thing super vague? Be more specific, right? Add, make mm -hmm. it helpful. Uh, so yes, visual, visual simplicity is important. Uh, simplicity in writing is also important. You wrote something, read it out loud. Is that how you talk? <laughs> if it's not, break it down, simplify it. And by the way, I always make fun of the word solutions because even though Adam Street has it right there in their nav, um, we've tested this. And so Adam Street, I know is performing well, but generally I'd avoid the word solutions because it's not how people talk. No, no one says solutions except salespeople. That's the only person <laughs> who says the word solutions is the sales guy. I don't know. It, it sounds not, cheesy. It does. It, it, it's long and vague. The best words are short and specific. The right. best words are short and specific. The worst words are long and vague. So solutions is just like generic to everybody. It's just like, isn't, you couldn't think of anything better than that. I don't know. If you're a giant brand with a million things and you need a really, you know, all encompassing navigation label, I can get it because, you know, IBM probably has solutions up there because they've got to, they're, they're mega company, but not for all of us. That's an excellent takeaway for everybody. That simplicity is correlated with beauty. That's it is. Really and really and cool. conversion. And also I would say this specificity ah. is correlated with conversion. Conversion is a lead. That's lead generation. Visitor was a visitor. Now they've converted into a lead or subscriber or registrant or whatever, whatever. Specificity. Specificity correlates with conversion. Yes. So, you know, it's, you know, contact us is not very specific. Schedule a call with Pat, that's specific. Ah. Likely to have a higher conversion. That subhead I mentioned, our solutions, vague, right? It's like, you know, policies that, you know, our insurance covers, that's specific. It says insurance, right? Navigation labels, specificity is sort of unhelpful, right? If it just says, you know, solutions, it's not telling them, I don't know. I would just look at everything that you've written, look at every word, every paragraph, every subhead on a page and ask yourself, could that be more specific, more descriptive? Frequently, yes. Uh, and by the way, that's also good for SEO. Every time you're vague, you're missing a keyword opportunity. Uh, right? Yep, that's a really good point. Yeah. These are all giant missed keyword opportunities. That's a way to look at a page. Scan down a page and ask. These are just questions everyone should ask when they look at their website uh, you know, today, after you hear this, look at it today, scroll down to any depth is the most compelling thing at this scroll depth. Also the most visually prominent thing, or okay. did you put those, those, you know, you know, 500,000 lives insured. Was that tiny? If so, why do you make the most important thing tiny? Why not make it the most, why not make it the biggest thing? Second, did you miss any chances to be specific and descriptive in your navigation labels or calls to action? And finally, just did you miss any similar? Did you miss any keyword opportunities, or are your subheads, you know, really vague and general and common to everybody? I think the website is the the modern day storefront and maybe the best opportunity to allow a potential lead customer partner vendor to resonate with your brand. How do you think about branding on a website? And maybe that's again a pretty general question, mm -hmm. but. Yeah, I, I spoke with a couple of digital marketing experts and, and they talked a lot about using brand guides. And I'm just curious your thoughts about how you can get the most impact from your brand yeah. on your website. This is, uh, I'm going to just, this, this will be sacrilege and uh, please forgive me for all of my friends in branding, but I'm going to say it. Your visitors don't care about your brand. 
They care about themselves. They care about their problems. Every visitor to every website is very selfish and, and, and just motivated to solve their problems as quickly as possible. You care about your problems 10 million percent more than you care about a brand, right? That company's Agreed. brand. Yeah. Agreed. Well, how much do you name a brand that you deeply care about? Anyone, anyone, any brand? It's it. So brand is just not it's just overstated. I don't think it's irrelevant because over time you can build reputation and great and when it's especially relevant again for like the mega brands, you know, huge, huge carriers and insurers. And I get that, you know, those companies should spend a lot of money and pay a lot of attention to brand. But the typical visitor to the typical website is asking themselves first, am I in the right place? It's not a question about brand, right? They're looking for, you know, does this, can they possibly help me? Then could this be a fit for me? Scanning through the content, you know, is this relevant to me? Is this, you know, I know that you do that thing, but could you do it for me specifically? Do they do it well? Kind of the next question, right? Is there evidence to support the fact that you said you can do this for me, right? You do offer that, you know, motorcycle insurance, but, you know, have you done it for long? Do you do it for many people? You know, can you do it for me specifically? Do you do it in my area? Do you do it at my level? So anyway, there aren't many moments in a typical, in the psychology of a website visit where that person is thinking about a brand. Yes, you should have brand standards. Yes, you should have a color palette. Yes, you should be consistent in your typography. Yes, your tone and voice should, should make sense and flow nicely across their experience. But sites don't succeed or fail generally because of a, a brand you know, consideration. They succeed or fail based on how well they connected with that visitor. It's about empathy. Brand is sort of self-focused. It's like people talk, thinking about a lot about themselves. Like, who are we? Your visitors isn't, doesn't care, you know, they're worried about themselves in that moment. The success or failure on the website is how well the site is empathizing with them. Not it's, you know, did you do a deep exploration and spend 25 grand exploring, you know, writing a creative brief? I don't know. So there's my bias against branding. Pat, take it, take it or leave it. That's one perspective. I appreciate your perspective. I do. I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into SEO. And I want to just give you one, some feedback that I got once when we were, getting consulted with about our SEO was you should have a video on every web page. Wow. And I don't, we have not followed that. Frankly, I just don't think we haven't, we have not <laughs> recorded enough video content to have on every web page to really accomplish what we want to accomplish on each one. How do you feel about that specific piece of advice? Well, this is a big problem in digital is that uh, the advice on its face is, is not prioritized. So mm. also the advice is sort of unsupported. What is the hypothesis in that statement that you'll, that every page on the site will rank higher or that those specific pages will rank higher? Why would those pages rank higher? You know, is it assuming that, that each page is keyword focused or each, you know, each phrase when you search for pulls videos in the search results. So I couldn't help by maybe by making that much more specific. Okay. Uh, if a page, is optimized for search uh, and ranks, but doesn't rank very high, it might rank higher if the time on page from visitors from search is, is greater. I In see. other words, increased dwell time because dwell time is likely a search ranking factor. So a visitor okay. comes to the page, spends 10 seconds, hits the back button, that's low dwell time, it's a negative signal to Google. Adding a video to the page, visitor comes to the page, they're more likely to spend three minutes and then hit the back button. That's a positive search ranking factor. That's a that's a positive signal to Google. 
So videos can increase dwell time, thereby indirectly improving the rankings of a specific page, assuming that page is keyword focused. I'm not talking about all your pages, just that, that specific page. Okay. Is there any correlation between the fact that Google owns YouTube and putting like a video could, I guess, I don't know if you have to search specifically within the video section of Google to have a, a YouTube video pop up or a link to your website that has a video pop up. What's the correlation between Google and YouTube? Perfect question for next, because, okay, so this is separate from dwell time and user interaction signals, which was that first point to improve the ranking of a page that already sort of ranks by, by making visitors more engaged with it. Now, this second question is about to what extent are videos themselves likely to rank in search? That question is answered phrase by phrase. Every key phrase is a different competition. So it has to be approached with a different strategy. So first take your key phrase, search for it. Do videos appear in the Google search results? If so, trust me, they're all gonna be YouTube. So Google is favoring YouTube when ranking videos in Google search results. And if so, if yes, there are videos in Google search results, now you know that you have a second strategy for targeting this key phrase. You can target it with URL, a search search optimized page, or you can target it with a video. You get two bites at the apple, but this is only relevant if when you search for the key phrase, videos show up in search results, which happens a lot now. So if there's no videos in the Google search results, then there's no SEO reason to make that video uh, for, you know, uh, to make a search optimized video. So I definitely would never tell a client, make a video for every page, that's absurd. But if the key phrase you're targeting has a bunch of videos at the top, and you can create as much visit now you're, and someone watches that you will get visibility. You're not going to get traffic. That's not traffic. That's video views, right? Search for a phrase like, um, um, I don't know how to set up Google analytics. Okay. okay. I've got a video that ranks. I've got an article that ranks people. Sometimes just watch the video. Sometimes people go to the article, people that watch the video, it's like 10,000 views on that video. It's great. It's lovely. I'm happy about that. I'm not getting traffic from it. So this is modern SEO. Not all ranking creates visibility. Sometimes you rank, but you're ranking far down because you're pushed down by other stuff at the top. And not all visibility is rankings, right? I might be visible from a YouTube video and people are just going there. I'm not even getting traffic from it. So modern SEO requires close, like a close analysis of the search results pages for the given key phrase. If there's videos in there, you, gotta, you, you can use a video strategy. For those key phrases so that we can push our website to the top of Google search, is there a way, I guess, how do we use key phrases on our website in order to have our our site rank towards the top Mm. in Google search? Yeah, it's it's a a giant question. I'll I'll just do, I'll touch on the elements briefly. First, you have... Uh, you have to confirm that your site has a chance of ranking or that your page has a chance of ranking. So if all the other high ranking pages are from much more authoritative websites, those sites have many, many more links to them than yours, then you have no chance of ranking and you should target a different key phrase. So step one is to confirm that you have a chance by comparing the, your authority to the other authority, the pages that rank there. That's, that's done with a tool like Moz or SEMrush or Ahrefs. So that's, you can also kind of eyeball it and if they're all super famous and you're not famous, 
try a longer, more specific phrase. So that's step one, confirm your ranking potential, right? Keyword difficulty. Second step, use the, now, now you've, you've qualified the phrase, it's a good, good phrase for you, right? Which by the way, sometimes just means adding words, you know, motorcycle insurance in Southern Wisconsin. Wow, that's gonna be okay. way easy. Yeah, make it a lot, you know, just get more specific, you know? or uh, by adding the geography or adding the target audience or something to make it a longer, more specific, less competitive key phrase. Okay, now we're gonna target this phrase. I need to put that key phrase in the three main places, title, header, and body text. The title tag, the head of the body. That's just SEO 101, indicate relevance. But then the next step, I think a lot of people miss, it's to incorporate all of the semantically related phrases. Find all of the words and phrases that are related to motorcycle insurance in Southern Wisconsin by doing other searches and seeing what Google recommends as you're, as you're typing in the query, right? Google suggests phrases by looking at the people also ask box, what questions are people asking? Have I answered those questions in my copy, in my content, you know, by looking at the, um, uh, the related searches at the bottom, uh, by looking at the other rankings, if you have a tool, you can see the other rankings of the other high ranking pages. Um, you know, by, by using other tools like answerthepublic.com, we'll show you other questions people are asking. So you want to find like probably 10 or 15 or 20 phrases and incorporate those into your page. Make it a long, very detailed, very specific page. Use the target key phrase and the title header and body text, but then semantic SEO. Google's not matching words and phrases and letters, right? It's, it's actually trying to understand the intent of the visitor and what's a great page. So a short way to say this is target the topic, not just the key phrase and target the topic by incorporating into your copy, all of the related subtopics and semantically related phrases, which you can find instantly just looking at a Google search results page. It sounds like there is a serious amount of R and D that should go into uh, figuring out what you want to put on your webpage before you actually create it. Is that something that you guys do for the clients that you work with? Do you guys do the R&D and then do you guys put that, put the content on the webpage together for your clients? Yeah, we do all those steps. You have to do those steps or else, um, if you miss even one of those steps, you're not gonna get any results. So that is the job yeah. basically. So, uh, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really important point because I find uh, very frequently in digital that it takes more time to figure out what to do then it takes time to do the thing itself. So okay. I might spend uh, 10 minutes looking at reports to figure out what is the most impactful action I can take. The action itself might only take one minute. It's pretty common. So mm -hmm. it, it's uh, research is absolutely the key. Research helps you helps guide prioritization. And by the way, Pat, if you don't do these things, then you have actually a greater risk of zero impact. You're gonna waste more time in the long run. This is actually all time saving in the end, because you're very unlikely to do things that that uh, get no result. I don't have time to just throw spaghetti at a wall. I'm more than happy to spend 45 minutes carefully researching key phrases and topics and semantically related words to build a page that I know, huge confidence, this is gonna perform well, um, than to just keep pumping out medium quality things or guessing or just randomly publishing or making a video for every page. Who's got time to, that's insane. No one can do that. I have a question 
associated with that maintenance element that we were discussing previously. Let's say you have knocked it out of the park with one of the standard web pages that you have on your website. In terms of the maintenance and in terms of SEO rankings, are you looking to come out with new new web pages or blog posts or maybe potentially linking back to other websites that have some of the similar content to like constantly push the fact that you are the expert associated with that key phrase and all the, mm-hmm. all the other words that are close to that or um, would fall into that same category. Are you constantly pushing out new content that is associated with the category that you want to be associated with? Yeah, I do if, if um, in a couple of scenarios. One, I made the page, it's ranking, but not yet ranking high. I'm going to do some more okay. work. Or I made the page, it's ranking very high, and the ranking is starting to fall. I'm going to do some more work. You know, if you publish the page and the page just is not performing anywhere, you can't find it in search, it's just, you know, you, you targeted the wrong phrase, I might just forget that one and go do something different, right? Make Try again, try a different phrase. Okay, so in either of those scenarios, I'm a striking distance key phrase, big potential if it could rank higher, or it's a falling phrase, right? It's ranking high, it's going to fall. I'm, what work do I do? The problem might be authority. There's not enough links to this page. I'm going to write an article on another website and link back to my original. That can improve the rankings if the problem is authority. Sometimes the page has lots of authority, right? And the problem mm-hmm. is relevance. Those are the two main factors in search, right? Authority and relevance. Okay. The problem is relevance. I need to I need to keep I need to keep making this a better page. I need to go do some research. What is it almost, you know, what is it ranking for but not ranking high? Can I add detail? Can I add depth? Can I add additional answers? Maybe uh, we said a minute ago, maybe people are are visiting it, but the bound, but the time on page is very low. Maybe I could add a video. That's an SEO tactic, as we discussed. So yeah, there's there are scenarios where I will continue to work on it. Um, if it's a valuable topic and you're trying to own that category, right? Wisconsin motorcycle insurance or whatever, uh, you should be publishing lots of stuff on that topic, right? A single act of content, you know, Random acts of content are not sufficient in that scenario to really own the category. So you should be writing um, more than one article for your site. You should be writing articles for more than one website besides your own. You should be getting other contributors to write articles uh, for you, right? You should be publishing in other formats besides just articles. We mentioned video. We're on a podcast, right? There's other formats. So very rare for the content strategist to think broadly enough about a topic to try to really dominate that topic by publishing in multiple places with multiple contributors in multiple formats. But those are the people that really get the best results in the long run. Okay, for Evolve, we get tons of traffic from our sales efforts and we're excited to continue improving our uh, SEO, moving our website to the top when it comes to specific keywords. Do you find there is alternative ways that people will come to your website or find out about your website or your brand, like social media or potentially something else. Is there, you know, something beyond, I I know Google is obviously a huge, huge topic because that's what we all use, but is there anything else that would cause someone to come to your website that you guys are focused on? Email, social, word of mouth, referral, direct. Uh, I am a huge fan of email because uh, email is the one source of traffic that you kind of own. You don't own, you don't own LinkedIn and you don't own Google, but you do own your email address. 
So it's like disintermediation. I, every email subscriber is someone who gave you permission to contact them directly, cutting Google and LinkedIn out of the middle. So it's very, so every hardcore digital marketer I know is aggressively trying to grow their email list because they know that that's like your, your best chance at long-term security. Huh. So I, I would always prioritize that or subscribers generally, right? Email, YouTube, podcast. These are ways that the um, that you're going to be able to get in front of a person again and again over time uh, without having to be rediscovered again and again through search, which is uh, more difficult all the time. Okay, got you. When someone, let's just say in the insurance world, is looking to outsource the their web development and their web optimization, their SEO, what sort of price do you think someone's looking at to make sure the website is crafted, created the way it should be, the foundation is there, and then it's maintained? I love it. Let's, and we can be totally transparent, which people yeah. may not be expecting. So there are, there's a wild range of, uh, of expectations and of yeah, service the- providers. Th- that's so why it's, I asked. Yeah, it's 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 really fun, right? This is like people that is all over the place, uh, uh, and you and websites literally range from free to ten million dollars. So we're in a, we're talking about a broad category. It's crazy. It, it is, and it's got to be difficult for the buyer. Uh, I'm on the marketing committee for some for for different groups, and I'm, I've been on that other side of the table, which is fun for me. Um, so there are I don't know a reliable way to outsource and get a website done. Uh, from a team that's going to give you enough priority to complete the project in a realistic way uh, for less than like $15,000. Don't, I don't know of anybody that I can refer to at lower numbers than that. Okay. It's just not something I, that I'm personally aware of now, like the reliable 5k provider. Those people are just, I don't know, underwater. There's, there's, they're, they're too busy, right. Or something. I don't know what's happening there. The next level up is sort of where we are. The site I mentioned, a lot of the sites we do, these are six-figure projects. These are five or six experts spending five to 700 hours over four months doing okay. keyword research and conversion copywriting and stakeholder interviews and UX and you know the site map and you know setting up tests and building that, you know, there's a million little things that go into building a high-performing site. That includes you know, setting up analytics, reviewing analytics post-launch. There's so many details. Um, privacy, accessibility, load time. It's crazy how many details there are. And so that's what it takes us. And so a lot of these are like, you know, 90, 100, 110K projects. The next level up is of course the $400,000 sites done by giant agencies. And then there's the ongoing promotion and service providers that do retainer-based things. Those seem to range from five to 10K per month. Are the costs broken up in chunks? Like for example, I'm guessing a lot of folks would have to have their website just officially like recreated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you, then you're in the maintenance portion of things. Is it like a big upfront cost? And then the cost is lower just because the, you know, a lot of the work has been done and it's kind of just the maintenance process is then kicking in. How does that work? I think a lot of people underestimate how much time it takes to build it, but then overestimate how much time it takes to maintain it. Okay. So, you know, if a well-built website, you spent you know, $100,000 on it, your maintenance costs post-launch should really be zero. I mean, why are you maintaining what needed maintenance? If you're doing ongoing optimization, 
you know, reviewing analytics, writing new pages, updating pages to rank higher, doing lots of SEO copyright, copy editing or ongoing publishing. Yeah, that's not maintenance exactly. That's just marketing. So build the platform, yeah. build the mousetrap, right? That's, that, that's a, a, a huge expense of time and cost. And you have to do it every five years, something like that. Amortize it over time. That's like the cost of great web. You can start to figure it out. Post-launch, you don't need... I don't understand how people propose websites that say, and right after it's live, we're going to do $3,000 a month worth of maintenance. What? What if you bought a car that needed $3,000 a month worth of maintenance the day you rolled it off the lot? That's insane. Crazy. That's insane. Yeah. Websites don't need, they don't need maintenance like that. You might have a service agreement. If you're a big company, you've got a big marketing team. They're making lots of requests for changes based on, I don't know, new product launches or something. Then yes, you might yep. need a service agreement. It'll make ongoing changes more, more efficient. That's not maintenance. So I would budget hundred bucks a month for hosting, but I would not budget $1,000 or $5,000 a month for maintenance. I could absolutely imagine budgeting five to 10K per month for ongoing marketing or for website optimization or for you know, publishing and promotion and you know, search social email. Those things are uh, very time consuming and also take experts. Could be done in house, as we said, but no, I don't, but I think um, yeah. great web in our world costs about hundred grand to build a great uh, high performing lead gen website, post-launch ongoing maintenance. It's very close to zero. Mm -hmm. And that's something you guys do. Like, for example, if there's like a new product, new capability, or there's, you know, general, just like minor updates, that's something you guys do as well. Yeah. The client, I mean, we can do all that for the client. Um, the site is built to be easily updated. So whoever's doing it is not, a, is not, you know, doesn't have to use extra time, but. Oh, cool. Yeah. I mean, website updates should be free. Updating, updating a page should take no more time or cost no more money than updating a word document. Why would it? You log in, make the change, click save things that. Yeah. So, but like, okay. Um, you know, we launched a new business line or California changed their privacy laws. Or we got a letter saying that we have to be more accessible or we're going to get sued, you know, or, um, you know, we, we are splitting into two companies or we just acquired someone. These are all reasons why you may need to go back and do a little bit of strategy, talk to an expert, make some plans, look at some options. You know, these are, okay. um, so yeah, we do have clients that budget like 1500 bucks a month just to do those conversations, to do ongoing minor updates. Cause they're so, so active, but most clients, there's very little of that. Well, Andy, if someone's listening to this and they want to learn more about you, about Orbit, um, or they want to uh, potentially hear you speak, I know you speak at a lot of different marketing conferences, where can they get access to you? Orbitmedia.com. Uh, thanks for the question, Pat. I'm, anyway, I'm easy to find. Orbitmedia.com. Uh, I write an article there every two weeks. That's our frequency for our email. Uh, they tend to be in-depth, long-form research pieces or how-to pieces. Uh, LinkedIn is my best social network. Anyone is welcome to connect with me there. I have it set right now. So the blue button says follow, but if you click more, you can connect with me. Don't hesitate. Just send me a connection invite. I'm happy to connect with anybody. Um, we've got an orbit media has a YouTube channel where I publish a lot of videos. I like the questions about videos and yeah, conferences. Um, I will be at content marketing world, my ninth year speaking at content marketing world. Uh, that's in September. Uh, I'll be at the nice. marketing profs B2B forum. It's my seventh year speaking at the Marketing Profs B2B Forum. Uh, so you can find me at kind of a lot of the big events. I'm sort of a regular. Um, and uh, just or Andy at orbitmedia.com. I do my own email. I have a VA, but but it doesn't, but uh, I'm still in my own inbox every day and 
anyone can write to me anytime. Nice. Sounds good. Okay. Well, the final section we have here is the five rapid fire questions. <laughs> okay. So if you're ready, I can fire I'll away. I'll do my best. I'll be concise. I'm ready. <laughs> okay, cool. Question number one, is there a book on digital marketing that you think marketers in the insurance world should read? My book, Content Chemistry, is the most detailed how-to on content marketing. But when I think of books more generally, uh, Mar uh, Mark Schaefer's book, Marketing Rebellion, lays it out. That, that will give you a framework and a way to think about modern marketing uh, that answers a ton of questions and will set you on the right track. Question number two, who is your favorite social media influencer? <laughs> well, Anne Handley is the world's first chief content officer. She's the founder of Marketing Profs, which we mentioned a second ago. And she is just such a charming, disarming writer. Uh, being on her, her newsletter, she sends, uh, it's her fortnightly newsletter, comes out on, a, on the weekends and uh, people really look forward to it. It's just her approach, um, the, uh, just getting close to Anne and reading her stuff will give you a sense of how the voice of the writer can come through in a way that is non-boring, is totally different, is very human and personal, really touches on a lot of that we just discussed. I'll have to check her out. Is there like a platform, like a social media platform or a website that you think we should go to? Uh, I would connect. Check out Anne. Uh, I mean, she's very active on, on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, but it's, okay. but if you look for Anne's, uh, Anne's newsletter, that's how a lot of people keep in touch with her. And that's kind of where she just pours herself into it. Like it's just fun stuff. Like she was just talking about how the, um, you know, AI can do a lot of things, but people do it better. The subtitles on stranger things, that wasn't AI. That was a person and they worked hard at those and they are awesome. <laughs> it's like, wow, <laughs> Ann, you just pulled, you pulled that one out. Like, yeah, you know, it's, it's just copy in general, right? She's just very, very good on the copy and content side. And she's got, uh, her, her book, um, uh, everybody writes is being re is about to be relaunched. So, uh, she's also got great books. Okay. Good shout. Question number three, this one's a bit more personal. Mm -hmm. What is the coolest scuba diving trip that you've been on? Oh, oh well, uh, you don't have to go around the world to, to do great diet. People fly from around the world uh, to go to the Caribbean. Um, Belize has some incredible places. Oh. Uh, the Great Blue Hole is, a, I think, a bit overrated. It's almost more geology than biology. It's like a, it's an interesting sinkhole, but the reefs off of Ambergris Cay and, and in Belize, they are uh, beautiful. There's probably even, you know, better places around the world, but I've done a ton of diving in Cozumel and Belize, and those are places I got to recommend. I had to ask that question because I saw that on your bio yeah. that you're a big scuba diver. I was, I got little kids now. I haven't been in a long time, but uh, I've, I don't know, hundred dives over the years. Yeah. Very impressive. Okay. Question number four, should the insurance world be on TikTok? Oh, well, if you're selling a type of insurance where the buyer or influencer of the buyer is hanging out on a TikTok, then yes. I should never just say no to things because when you say something, you know, whatever it is, you know, crypto or blockchain or TikTok, you're probably <laughs> yeah. going to be wrong. You know, if you just say people aren't going to do that, people probably will do that. Uh, so my best guess is I, uh, you probably don't need to be in a rush to be on TikTok, but never say never. Um, start with the buyer. Start with the audience. Where are they? Where are they sitting? What is the true story in their life? 
the zero moment of truth when they decide they need help, what do they do next? Who do they ask? Be influential over them. What do they search for? Target those key phrases. You know, what, what social network are they, you know, do they hang out in? Be present there. So uh, every question in marketing can more or less be answered by asking, um, by, by going back and just focusing on the audience. Final question for you. What is the most optimized website on the internet, in your opinion? <laughs> uh, Wikipedia. Huh. I, it, it's almost certainly yes, right? Because, um, I mean, there's if you you could probably do it by industry, and there's like you know Cleveland Clinic for healthcare, and there's like you know certain ones for real estate, but but generally speaking, you know if search is about making the best page on the internet for the topic, Wikipedia has won that battle for so many categories. Uh, I've seen mm. I've seen data sets where Wikipedia ranks for five percent of all queries. So it, wow, yeah. If you're trying to, I mean, if you want an example, I know it's dry, it's not business focused, but uh, if it is a, uh, if you want to just just pull it up and like look at a page on any topic and just see an insanely detailed page on the topic, to kind of you can't write that way for a service page or for a business. You know, you need more formatting, you need more visuals, you need to be more scannable, you need more, you know contributor quotes and statistics and testimonials. I mean, Wikipedia is not a business page, but that level of depth, we should all aspire to. That is, I'm really glad I asked that because I think that is a great learning lesson for how, how we should approach SEO. Yeah. It sounds like detail is a big component of that. Google's trying to connect people with the best page on the internet. Did ask, just ask, did you make the best page on the internet for this topic? If yes, you've I, got a right to rank. If no, you I have love no Wikipedia. Right to, yeah, and it's the best site on the <laughs> internet, I, I, in my view. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, <laughs> Andy, you're the man. Thank you so much for the insights that you've delivered today. I would love to have you back on if there is a topic that comes to mind around something that's super beneficial for the insurance world, uh, particularly within the entire umbrella of marketing. It's a category that I personally am a huge fan mm -hmm. of and I think I'm just naturally drawn to. So I really appreciate your time. And is there any final notes that you want to leave the audience with? Man, just, I come back to that very first point we made, be human, be a person, fill your site with page, with, with faces, be yourself, uh, be present. Uh, and then, and, uh, keep in mind that just a lot of people go look at your analytics. I'll bet you a beer. People who go to your website are going to the about page and looking for people. That's almost certainly the top path on every website of every listener to this show. Uh, I, I would uh, literally bet a beer on that one. Okay, deal. If you're ever on San Francisco, if I'm in, if I'm in Chicago, so, we'll make we'll it a beer. That'd be great. I love that. <laughs> Thanks for this, Pat. Perfect. Thanks, Andy. I'll talk to you. Please download subscribe and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on and feel free to reach out to me at pat at evolvedbrokerpodcast.com with any comments or suggestions for the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. If you're tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose FIRST as your primary financing source and experience the FIRST difference today. 